Welcome to The Original Doll. I am your host, James Rodriguez. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, the.originaldoll, and subscribe on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Apple Podcast, you can go ahead and rate it as well. Here's what's great. If you are a fan of music, if you've ever wanted to ask a question to somebody who collaborated on any of your favorite songs ever, go to www.theoriginaldoll.com, scroll all the way down, leave the artist name, the title of the song, and your favorite memory of that song and a question you have in that comment section, and it gets sent to me. Then if I do in fact have any of those guests who collaborated on there coming up, I'll be sure to try to ask that question. So you can find it www.theoriginaldial.com. Big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your support through the years. Now on with the show. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and uh, I never realized how good they were. And I've turned down a lot of interviews about Britney um, in documentaries, you know, and I've turned it down. Part one of the interview recorded over Zoom. And as with every episode of the original doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I would like to welcome you back to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn all about the village it takes to create these iconic moments and music. Thank you so much for being here today on The Original Doll. You're welcome. Pleased to be here. I am beyond excited because so many people know, they're like, oh, he did A&R. And many people were like, early on when I started doing the show, they said, what exactly is that? And so I started talking to them. But before I get into your bio, can you give us your definition of what an A&R person does? Well, um, well, first of all, before we do anything, I just want to say the reason I'm doing this is because your podcasts are, are great. They're really good. You do all your research. In fact, you know more about Britney's career than I do. And, <laughs> and, I, and I, will be, uh, I will be leaning on you uh, desperately for, for backup information when I, when, I, when I come up dry with answers. But um, uh, A&R was originally a term for a record company executive and it stood for artists and repertoire. And that means you're the person in the company who who uh, who basically deals well on with the artist. You're, um, it's evolved into um, you know, finding the songs, finding the artist, finding the producers, basically putting the whole musical end of it together. Um, the, um, it's, 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 it's a weird job because because you are really the only you are the main connection to the artist in a, in a record company when there's so many suits around you know all doing things and, and all having um, different agendas the artist needs to feel that it's not like me against them you know um, because that happens sometimes I've been on the other side of the desk as an artist and a songwriter so I know exactly how it feels. And to have that A and R person who is uh, artist friendly um, can make or break a record company, in my opinion. So it's basically what you are. You're just like the, the human smiley face for the record company who deals with the creative, <laughs> and the people who can put up with artist bullshit and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hopping on for a quick second because you may say, "Who is James talking to? What are we talking about?" Well, I wanted to get 
some of the information out there first so that you can see where we're going with this episode. And as with every episode of the original DAO, any audio recording ripping is st strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see any of these items leaked online, please report them to the webmaster. But today we are joined by none other than Steve Lunt, who was there during the development time of Britney Spears, the kind of trial period, if you will, from the ultimate official signing to Jive to putting together the, you know, baby album, Oops, so on and so forth. And he got a very special shout out from Britney Spears on the In The Zone liner notes. She said, Steve Lunt, the greatest A&R guy in the world. Thanks for having my back and being on the same page. And those words, those things will come up in a ton of details. But what's been great with Steve is there were no questions that were off limits. We go through everything. We clear up misquotes, miscredits, uh, misspears. We go through it all. And what's been great is when people have talked before saying, oh, I think this song was a demo for or a pitch to. Early on, those early albums, Steve would know. And Steve has all of these notes, uh, everything. I mean, I thought I was detail-oriented. He is very much so. And that's what's been great. We've been able to clear up things because the part I've loved about my conversations with Steve is that you truly learn a different side of Britney Spears. And I think as fans, it's really eye-opening and in such a good way that from the beginning, we knew Britney Spears very much knew kind of what she wanted to do with her career. She knew what she was doing. And when people talk about vocals and things like that, you know, Britney's even said before, she's like, yes, you know, there are these... People are comparing me to this other artist. Yes, she has this great voice. She has this. She has that. But it comes down to the personality. Britney Spears's vocals have always come into conversation whenever people talked about the music. You liked it or you didn't like it. I always talk about the fact that Britney Spears's voice is so distinctive. Britney Spears knew how to tell a story and still does, which has been unbelievable. So we go through everything. And so Britney fans and fans of music... You're going to learn all about one of the biggest debut albums of all time. And we go through almost track by track on this album and the subsequent albums. So be prepared and make sure that you subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify or Amazon because I'm going to be surprised dropping these, if you will, releasing them. But I wanted to let you know, now we're going to get right to this and be ready. There's a lot of facts that we're going to get. There's a lot of things that we've never even heard before. And we're learning all of that. So if you want to learn about a young Britney Spears and, you know, the, the dawn before her stardom, you've gone to the right place. So my name is James Rodriguez. This is the original doll. Now back to the show. Well, and what's great is when we talk about Britney Spears for the listeners, here's what's great. For every question that Steve answers, we get items donated to charity. So we help out women in domestic abuse shelters, homeless LGBT plus teens, and more. So every question that Steve answers, we're able to get items donated to help out those in need. So Steve, first and foremost, thank you for, for doing that, you know, with us. So we appreciate you answering these questions. It's great causes, fly away. All right, perfect. Now, everyone, this is how amazing Steve's career, even if we just look for a moment at the Britney thing. He was responsible and part of the collaboration and r from the baby album, Oops, Britney in the Zone, The Greatest Hits, Chaotic, Be in the Mix. 
And for those listeners who follow me on any of the socials, you know that the wall behind me is all Britney stuff. And so Steve can see all of his lovely work behind me on rows. Like I'm a terrible weatherman, so I'm like opposite. I'm like these six rows of things. Uh, But I want to go back to the beginning for you, because I think what I've loved about being able to talk to everyone is find out how music came to be a part of them, because you're a creative. So when did music first become a part of you? Um, I'll try and keep it short because nobody really wants to know, you know, like <laughs> what you thought when you came out of the womb. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I just really got it. I got interested in music from, you know, I'm an old guy now, so I got interested in music, you know, way, way back. And, uh, and just, and I didn't really, and I wrote my first song at 14. I'll skip all the rest. Um, I wrote my first song at 14 and then, old. um, uh, my first song ever was called uh, "Catch the Night Train." It was called. It was kind of a Bob Dylan thing, except without the except without the talent. You know, it's, that was it was Bob Dylan without the talent. Um, but uh, and then basically, I got together with my best friend, and we just used to, you know, get drunk and and smoke naughty things up in his in his father's attic, and um, and and we and we started writing songs together ourselves, and then. Before you know it, I had a band together. Like, and, and when I'm, you know, and in think 1975, we we got a record deal, and like it was just it just sort of fell together organically. It wasn't something that we had a master plan. Then we ended up having um, some hit records and a couple of hit records in England, um, you know, on top of the bobs and all those things. And then um, this is really the short version, by the way. And then <laughs> I left the band. Right, I left the band in 1979, um, and and then I moved to New York and I became a professional songwriter. And at that point, I wrote um, a bunch of songs for different people. So I don't know where you, how far you want me to go with this story, but because we that brings you into the begins you into the uh, beginning of the eighties, I guess. Because the eighties, we actually have, and this is what's kind of awesome is, I tell many people like I'm a liner geek. So when you would go and buy these albums and open up and see who the songwriters, who the producers are, because then you could kind of find them. The funny thing is many people that I've interviewed on on the show, I've been like, that's the way you pronounce your name? Because I only knew it based on just right. booklet. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't all of these, you know, great audio clips or YouTube for that matter to be like, oh, their name is this or this person's name is that. Yeah. Like, oh, it's like when I first right. read Harry Potter, I was like, is it Hermione? I think it's Hermione. And then you find out it's Hermione. I was like, my world was crashed. Yeah. I was an idiot. But <laughs> I, I, what I loved is telling people that and we actually had somebody who your career has impacted many people we're going to go through that but there's something i wanted to um read to you and it was from taylor from kentucky and taylor said they were a childhood cancer survivor and they loved goonies and they loved goonies are good enough Uh and they just wanted to say thank you so much for making music that me as a kid going through a very adult situation was able to smile run and be happy with to this day, I still think of it fondly. Thank you so much to everyone involved. And for Mr. Lund, let him know that my son grew up loving all of his work with Britney Spears. So thank you so much. And that was from Taylor from Kentucky. Wow, that's 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 a great comment from Taylor. That really is. Um, yeah, the whole Cindy Lauper thing. And I realized that, you know, you don't realize it when you're doing it, but that but that movie became iconic and uh, and kind of cult, cult-like, you know. And uh, in fact, I get more... Um, comments about that, more compliments about that, about my association with that than I do 
about almost anything else in my career, including Brittany. But that's the way it is. I'm, I'm telling you, because it, it impacted a lot of children. And that's a sweet story. So thank you for letting me know that. Well, and what I think is great is here you are, you know, in what, 83, 84, like early 80s, working with Cindy Lauper and the Shebop, which you also worked on, and Goonies or Good Enough couldn't be like more opposite songs. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. So let's let's rewind. How did you get involved okay. in Go for it. Cindy, this? The Cindy uh, atmosphere, and also many people are asking, how did it feel knowing that you had a huge hit with a song that was about, we'll say, self-love? So can you please ask yes. Steve about that? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> it's like, here we go. Yeah. When I when I left the band, I tried a solo career for for a minute. I just did only actually did one show, and I realized that without my friends and my mates around me in the band, it really wasn't much fun at all. So I went from doing, um, I think we did uh, five albums with the producer Mutt Lang, um, producing us. We had a couple of hits in England, and, um, and I'm only saying Mutt Lang's name here because the person who managed him was a guy called Clive Calder, who then managed us as a band. And that comes in later in the story, in the timeline. But but then I did this one show and I didn't really enjoy it. And I decided um, maybe I should just concentrate on writing songs as opposed to being a front man in a band. I just I just didn't feel like good anymore. I wasn't enjoying it. And um, and I got hooked up with this lawyer, and then he and he was partners with this manager called Dave Wolf in New York. This is, and Dave Wolf managed. Cindy Lauper at the time. Um, she was in a group called Blue Angel, and they were kind of like cult-like band, like doing rockabilly type of things. And um, uh, and then when she got dropped by a label, Polydor, I think it was, she got a label, she got a, a deal with with a CBS, um, I forgot the name of the, of the small label she was on. But um, but he asked me to write with her, like and with Cindy, and I I tried, and the first time it didn't work. And then I just thought, okay, that's it. It wasn't like a big deal. Um, she hadn't had a hit record. She was no one at the time. And then a little bit later, she called me up and she said, and by the way, excuse me clearing my throat, but I've had a little bit of a cold recently. Um, okay. She called me up and she said, Steve, because I had this little recording set up in my apartment in New York, in this tiny apartment. And it was before the days of computers and everything like that. So like the recording thing meant it. I say it was a small setup. Obviously, it was large by comparison, by a laptop comparison, you know. But um, so, and it was, you know, tape. It was not digital, so it was it was quite clunky. Anyway, she, she called me up and she said, Steve, I've been um, writing this song with this guy in town and he won't let me sing it the way that I want to sing it. Can I come around to your place just so I can lay down a vocal on it? I said, sure, come around. So she came around um I think with a six pack of Guinness, I think, and uh, and we sat down and and we recorded this vocal and we spent about an hour doing it, just a quick demo vocal on it, the way she wanted to sing it. I didn't give her any direction. She just wanted to get something out of the system. And at the end of it, she said, so what do you think of the song? And I said, actually, Cindy, I don't really like it that much. <laughs> she said, no, it's shit, isn't it? You know, she just really wanted to get this out of her system. And because I'd been an artist myself in a band, I knew how that felt. You know, sometimes you just got to get it out and have a look at it. For somebody to tell you that you can't do that is 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 
super frustrating. And for her, it would have been even more so because she's being told by a guy that she couldn't sing it the way she wanted to sing it. And that was like sticking a rusty knife in her heart, like, because she would really not agree with that. So anyway, so then she said, okay. And then we, we sat down and we started consuming the Guinness and um, just talking. And I think it was my wife who said, why don't you play that song you started? And I had the song. It was already called Shebop, and I already had the track for it, and I already had the Shebop, like a like a Buddy Holly, like rockabilly type of thing. So I did. I I played it for her, and I said, but i got to tell you, you I warn you ahead of time that it's actually about masturbation. Um, and uh, she said, perfect, let's do it. So we spent the next two days writing the lyrics. Like I learned her whole life story. So she spilled that harmony, wrote the song, she bought it. It was the last song added to her debut album, She's So Unusual. And it turned out to be her third single. And it was in the, it went straight up to number, it was in the top three for a month in America. Yep. And suddenly my life changed course completely. So, you know. Um, and it went gold. I had. States too, by the way. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. No, you see, you know that. I don't know. That's <laughs> Um, but there's a, a quick story, which is a preliminary story to that, which ties into later stuff with, with, with Brittany is that, um, when I was in, in, in the band I was in, almost at the name, and I don't want people looking it up because it's kind of embarrassing, <laughs> um, but, uh, but when I was in the band I was in, um, we were managed by Clive Calder, as I mentioned earlier on, who was from South Africa and he came to England and managed us. Um, and, um, at the end, when I when I when I left the band, uh, he they our publishing deal was with him and with Warner Chapel, and I said I'd really, um, uh, you know, I wanted to get out of the publishing deal because I wanted a, a career as a as a solo artist, um, and I thought that might help in going into labels and getting a career going and everything, and I made the mistake of going to a lawyer and and the lawyer writing. Clive a letter and saying he's no longer in the band, releases releases his publishing, to which Clive said, you know, mm-hmm. basically, fuck you. You know, it's <laughs> um, signed here, it's a contract, get lost. So then I spoke to Mutt Lang, who's the famous legendary producer, Mutt Lang, who if people don't know has done everybody and they should look it up. Because um, mm-hmm. Including me to get Including into- Britney Spears for the Britney Spears. Including listeners. Britney Spears, yes. And Backstreet Boys, yes. Uh, um he um, and, and I said, "What should I do?" Because he know he he was from South Africa and he knew Clive like the back of his hand. He said, "said He said, write him a personal note yourself. Don't get lawyers involved because he'll just say no for the sake of it if it's a lawyer." So so I I did. I wrote him a letter, and then by return of mail, he said, "You're out of your you're out of your publishing deal. Here's your all your publishing back. You know, oh, wow. uh, good luck with your career and everything." It was, it was literally that easy. It's just how you approached people, you know? And that was another lesson I learned right there. So that was a big change in my life right there because from going from being handcuffed to being a free man was, was uh, you know, was liberating, you know, literally liberating. So um, so that, you know, when when I got the, the, the deal with Cindy, um, I had all my publishing to myself and suddenly I was a, you know, I was a hot property because I, you know, had this hit record out there and I had all my publishing. So, you know, for a while there, I was I was doing great. The phone was ringing off the hook with publishers trying to... Mm. I learned so much in this period about the music business, you know. Mm. Um, 
you know, from being from being an artist um, into suddenly turning into a professional songwriter. When I say professional songwriter with quotes, that's a, it's a, a weird business to be in, and you you learn about about business the hard way. But that was the first first time yet in my life which made a make you know a massive difference to my life. But I wondered back, so like 1983, 84, you though writing this song and a woman singing a song about, you know, masturbation, like how did the label, like, did you ever hear like how the, especially because clearly making it a single, no faith in that. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happens because, um, um, we wrote it and we kind of wrote it in code. Nobody knows and nobody knew what bop meant except for us. Bop was the verb, as far as we were concerned, for <laughs> for doing it, um, for doing the dirty deed. So, um, and we said we wanted to make it sound as innocent and a sing along that the head of her record company, which is Portrait Records, I just remembered, and uh, Lenny Pizzi was the uh, was the chairman, the owner of that of that label. We wanted to make it so innocent and sing along as kind of how twisted we were. It wasn't it wasn't meant to be twisted. It was just like we want to write this song, but we don't want it banned before we even get it off the ground. So let's just make it kind of, you know, innocent. So that's what we did. In fact, nobody knew what it was about until after it was released. And then the clubs, especially the gay clubs, caught on straight away what it was about. And uh and and then it became part of uh the it's actually it's actually entered music history because there was a I think it was the Dirty Dozen or the Top or the Dirty Ten or something um, that that this politician's wife Tipper Gore entered uh, when she went in front of Congress here. And there's all these twelve songs. Us. There was a Shebop. There was a Prince song. There was a bunch of songs that they thought were were not worthy of our children hearing, and that we should put stickers on them. And that was the beginning of the whole revolution when they started putting stickers, warning stickers on 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 records. So we were part of that. So. I'm one of the dirty dozen. Well, and the funny thing is, like, on that, it was like, you said Prince was on there, Madonna was on there, Twisted yes. Sister was on there, Black Sabbath, and and Sheena Easton, I remember, too. Because the, the crazy thing yeah, is, like, you look company, at that. right? Yeah, well, that's that's the whole thing. You look at it and go, these are not, like, even, like, one-hit wonders. These are icons and titans of the music yes. industry. And yeah. all those people really made their imprint in the 80s. You know, because I look at yes. that, it's like, we talk all the time about like wh- where was music at the time in like 83 you had you know uh madonna coming out you had janet jackson slowly with her first kind of couple albums that this was the beginning of a whole different generation of icons and things like that so of course when they're like we're gonna put you know yeah. parental advisory out there people are like that's gonna hurt their business it's like do you not know anything about artists you tell them not to consume <laughs> that they're gonna consume yeah. that like it yeah. to me it had the opposite, you know what I mean, impact because people know darling Nikki, you know what I mean. So it's yes, yes. but yeah. most people couldn't tell you what Tipper Gore looks like. But <laughs> yeah, So then, so from there, then all of a sudden you're, you know, good enough. Which you know I think it was changed by the label to tie into Goonies are good enough. Yeah, is that is yeah. that correct in my memory? Yeah, yeah. What happened? Like I ended up writing. Um... Um, a bunch of others on a second album, uh, one called Boy Blue, which is about a friend of hers who died of AIDS in the early days of AIDS in New York. Book. There was another one called Nine One One. I wrote the B side of um, we wrote the B side of, uh, of True Colors. Yeah, the B side of True Colors, which when there were had singles and there were B sides, 
you actually hadn't got as much money, money from yeah so yeah but wow you're good you're good <laughs> um because that's yeah, what b-sides were still b-sides <laughs> yeah yeah well it was a physical b-side you bought the you bought the 45 a little record and you flipped it over and there was another song so it often got listened to almost as much as the as the a-side if it was if it was decent um so we'd written those and then we were writing another song we had this sort of motownish sort of song and it was called uh What's good enough for me is good enough for you. That's what it was basically called at the time. That's, yeah. um, and there were three of us I was writing with this uh, with a guy called Arthur Stead, who, who was actually a band member of, of Mutt's group back in South Africa. So all these tie-ins. So I was writing with Arthur Stead, um, and we had this basic thing done. And then and we started working on the lyrics and fine-tuning the melody for her, like because she would definitely come up with She would definitely get the melody that I suggested and then just like totally run with it and Come up with something. We'd got this song sort of basically mapped out, and then she got a call from her manager saying that uh, Steven Spielberg and the people with Steven Spielberg they wanted this song. They wanted a song for the for a movie that they were making, and um, and they said it was called The Goonies, and we need to put The Goonies in the title somewhere because they wanted to make it the title song for the movie. And it was like how the fuck do you put Goonies in a title of a song and make it sing well? I mean, it's a so, so we said, we're not doing that. We're just not. We'll change the title. And, uh, you know, like, uh, but we're not changing that. We can't sing Goonies. I mean, how can you do that? It's like, you know, so, um, so, so that's what we did. We just changed the title. We said, like, the Goonies are good enough, as opposed to what's good enough for me is good enough for you, became the Goonies are good enough, which we never sing in the song. Um, that's, that's, and then, that's a good music trivia she, she, right she, there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, she went in and she produced it with Lenny Pizzi. Um, uh, she didn't use her producer off the first album. Um, and I think it turned out pretty good. It turned out quirky and, and good and very Cindy and, uh, and fits with the movie perfectly, I think. So. And I got more, more compliments over that than, than, or more people asking about that than almost anything else. It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, and what I loved is that she was connected, wasn't she? Helping create, she's kind of the, she was almost like A and Ring the the Goonies soundtrack, the curator of it. If you, I always think of her as like the A and R of it because they got like the Bengals, yes. involved, Luther Vandross. There was, there was such a wide, yeah, like an artistic artist consultant type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because they wanted to tap into into her sensibility, her crazy, wacky sort of street New York, you know, sort of sensibility. Um, to get some of those artists, those younger artists at the time, into the soundtrack, they just didn't want it to sound like a soundtrack full of like old people, you know. Well, and I always equated it to years and years ago. Uh, Lord was brought on to like curate one of the Hunger Games soundtracks, and she had like Kanye mm-hmm. West and all these other people. She of course had her own songs, and so many people were like, "Well, does that happen often?" I go, "It doesn't, but when it does, look to see." Who's a part of that? Because usually, like, there are sometimes where you see labels where soundtrack come out. And it's just like it's just filled with the label roster. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, filled yeah. with. The, I'm not going to say much about Jive in that situation, but there are times where it's like yeah. we're just going to put. Yeah, that's a whole different subject. Right there. That's, that's <laughs> a whole different I, episode, right? Yeah. But what I what I what I loved is that you were on there, and there were so many people that were talking about how they want people to go back and want people to listen to Cindy Lopper's. You know, from Shebop to, you know, 
good enough to you know the uh, uh, brain farting blue uh boy blue boy blue blue yeah and there's true colors a, a, a big head weird and then girls just girls just want to have fun obviously yes but about how like for for the the lgbt community those that were impacted by aids yes. during that you know you had yeah. many people who didn't acknowledge that it was existing at the time and here were there was this creative yeah. woman who and i think people often forget how early on cindy lopper was an ally for you know what i mean well, for to the lgbt community yeah Almost from the first day I met her, to be honest with you, she she was she was um, uh, an ally of uh, of all different types of outcasts. Is the way she would describe it. You know, people who just didn't fit in, um, but she never did. And uh, and you know, she just totally identified with them and sympathized. And she's put her whole life into into causes like that, which is admirable. You know. Hopping out for a quick second to talk about Boy Blue. As many listeners of the original Dollar James Rodriguez know, oftentimes I talk about the impact that many of these artists, specifically the female artists, have had on with the LGBTQ plus community. And Cindy Lauper is no different. As a matter of fact, just two years ago, she gave an interview to Vogue magazine, and she talked saying that Boy Blue was a tribute to her childhood friend named Gregory Nuttall who ultimately succumbed to the disease. Now, she gave this quote, and I wanted to keep this in because I thought it was amazing, and I thought what Keaton Bell did in this interview was amazing. Sidney Lauper's quote was, I was told it was an unpopular cause, but I really only ever believed in unpopular causes, Lauper recently told Vogue. I've always seen my job as trying to shed light where there's darkness, where there is no love. You give love, right? Well, it goes on to say, Cindy Lauper continued to give back, and in 2008, she co-founded True Colors United, an organization that aims to prevent and end homelessness among LGBTQ plus youth. Now, I wanted to bring this up because this was at a time, you know, I talked before about Together Again, Janet Jackson. That was released in 1997, 10 years after, and we learned in interviews, and Jimmy Jam and Janet Jackson have talked about Janet's label at the time and those powers that be did not want a song about, you know, referencing or talking about AIDS or having that sort of song on an album. Janet Jackson fought that and it would become one of her biggest hits. But I think it's important to note that this was 87. For those who know about the AIDS epidemic, HIV in the 80s specifically, you know, it was the, it was considered the gay cancer and everything. And so many people didn't even acknowledge that word AIDS, HIV, and there's a whole history. And I just, you know, implore everyone to kind of check out those books, those um, sources for that, because there's not, you know, I can't go into the whole history of it because it's so complex and I don't want to shortchange anything. But I thought it's important that here's an artist, you know, Cindy Lauper at the height of her Cindy Lauperness, if you will that she chose to put this song on an album and then ultimately release it as a single. That to me is what's always been amazing about Cindy Lauper and so many others. And so I want you and have no fear. I always send out links about these songs uh, so you can purchase them. You can purchase the digital versions you can find on Discogs, the vinyl or anything that is released. But I want you to 
take a listen to this and remember this was created you know in 1986 85 86 it was released in uh the summer of 87 but take a listen to that and really think about those lyrics and think about this is 1987 when oftentimes we hear about artists like madonna or lady gaga you know label or management powers that be telling them do not speak about these things do not do that but these artists have embraced the community and the community has embraced these artists. So I wanted to pop out on that. So let me know what you think. And don't forget to message me and follow me on Instagram, that.original.dal. And there's also Patreon where you can, for as little as a dollar a month, uh, subscribe and join in and support the show so that I can keep this free and open for all. But we're going to get back to the show. Now we'll skip on. So we're, we're you know, mid, mid 80s at that point now. Mm-hmm. We know it's about another 10 years before the world collides of, you know, you, Jive, Britney, and everything. Mm-hmm. What happens from Goonies are good enough, you know, 85, 86, until the mid-90s? Where are you at songwriting, producing? Like, where were yes, you at yeah. creatively? Both, both both of those. I was songwriting. I was a, literally, as I said in quotes, in air quotes, I was a professional songwriter. It's like, you know, you don't have a business card for that, but that's what you are. Um, and uh, and I learned how to write with, with other people, um, uh, different types of people writing different types of songs, songs that I wouldn't, that I would never perform myself, but were right for other artists. And, um, you know, and, and I did, there was like, you know, I mean, I can't even remember half the people, you know, Joan Jett, uh, Peter Frampton. Felix Cavallari for the Rascals. I mean, I got, I can't even remember, to be honest with you. There's, there's so many. And I had a, and, you know, and I had, you know, a few hits um, as a writer, but it's, you know, it's tough going. Um, Mariah Carey used to sing all my demos. Um, See, now, this is something you wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't you just opened the door. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. For the Lamley, okay. the Mariah Carey fans. Yes, for the Mariah Carey fans. Um, Okay, I was working with this uh, with this Puerto Rican New York singer called Brenda K. Starr. She was like part of that whole Latin hip hop scene, um, and uh, and I wrote and produced a couple of hits for her, mainly dance hits uh, uh, here in New York. I mean, they and they into the pop charts too. But uh, one was "What You See Is What You Get," and the other was called "Breakfast in Bed," I think. And um, and she would do this live show, and she was funny because she's like half Jewish and half Puerto Rican. She was big in the New York, uh, like gay scene as well. They just totally got off on that over the top type of presentation that she did. And she was young. She was like 17 or something. She was a young, young girl with a very nasal voice. And we do used to do these demos. But then she said, she said, you ought to get my background singer who's singing with me now, like to come and sing the demo. She can imitate me. Great. So I said, fine, send her over. So she sent over another 16 year old and it was, uh, and it was Mariah Carey. And she came like all dressed up like you'd expect her to do, like she was going to a prom or something, you know, to sing a demo in my crappy apartment. Um, and she would sing and she'd put on this and she'd put on this Brenda K. Star voice, like, what you see is what you get. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just it. And then in between takes, she would suddenly go, Wah. like do all her Mariah Careyisms, you know, it was, like, it was like, you know, in order to get her loose, her voice loose. And I think also to show me that she could sing. Um, and this but she was, used this to was, say, and this was like a couple of years before she had a second out was like 87 ish because that had, I still believe you also had a song on there. I believe with her, what you see is what you get. 
because there was a yes. pretty one called "What You See Is What You Get." Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but yeah. the second, the pretty one. Oh, she's written that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, this is before uh, Mariah got her deal. In fact, I think if I remember rightly, she was at my apartment when she got the call that uh, Tommy Mottola, the head of the label, was looking for her. So she didn't know who Tommy Mottola was. So I had to say, "You'd better answer this call." Um, but but yes, yeah, she was the background singer, and she would sing like uh, like uh, um, you know, like the Brenda did, and then. And I found out, and she, she was the only singer, demo singer, in fact, any singer I've ever worked with, who not only warms up before she sings, but she warms down. She spends like 10 minutes warming down her voice. At least she did. Um, because her mother was an opera singer. And her mother taught her all these techniques, you know, with her voice. So she'd do, she'd do quite extensive warm-ups before we'd sing to open her voice up. Then after we finished, she'd just warm her voice down, just like slowly going down, doing the opposite that she did before she started singing. And uh, the only person I was ever, and she was so professional and so great at 16, you know. Well, and it's one of those things where like, I, what I loved hearing about Mariah Carey in general, she said, she's like, yeah, I used to do these demo things. She's like, I just wanted to get in front of people to kind of show them. She, yeah. And it's also like, there's that skill set. There's that muscle. You know, when you do a marathon, you don't just stop at, you know, the, the end of the month, you like continue to walk to cool down a bit. But what I yeah. wanted to talk about a little bit there is... Oftentimes we talk about background vocalists and demo singers and things like that. People are like, why does that person try to sound like this person on the demo? Why does that person sound like that? So Steve, can you explain like, why would Mariah Carey try to mimic the sound of Brenda K. Star for Brenda K. Star's background sort of thing? Well, because, because we were trying, because as songwriters, we were trying to sell that song to Brenda K. Star's label, a manager. And we wanted them to know what it would sound like with Brenda's voice on it. If if you put um, Mariah's voice on there, like doing you know doing what she does, there's no way that Brenda would it would just it would it would it would have just freaked everybody out. It would have freaked Brenda out, and um, she wouldn't have been able to sing like that. So you wouldn't have something that's relatable. So that when Brenda gets on there, she uh you know she, you know she feels like yeah I can sing this you know. Now it's funny because at times um, Mariah would sound more like. Brenda than Brenda, and Brenda would say she would have problems imitating Mariah, imitating herself. See, but, but, uh, what I, yeah. What I what I love about this is that when you, we we're at where you're in your career at that point, it's like you're working in all these kind of different genres. That it is, you know, Brenda K. Star is a completely different artist than Cindy Lauper. Like Brenda K. Star was not created yes. as as the next Cindy Lauper kind of thing. They had their own distinct right. flair. So right. you're working with these these people. You get to the Mariah Carey thing. Of course, I didn't know. I think most people didn't. This is kind of <laughs> the, another awesome thing. Um, so then, from there, where are you at by like the mid '90s? Um, okay, what had happened is that I, had, you know, I, I worked so hard and uh, you know, uh, and uh, I, I doing the writing and producing thing. Um, and with, with with some success, you know, we'd, I'd had some hits, but I didn't. I I was running out of steam, you know. Um, <clears throat> I know in your in your uh, uh, interview with with Joshua Schwartz, you know, he said he said I just had enough at some point, and I just gave up, and I just went into real estate. It was kind of that like that with me. I was I was feeling burnt out. I'd, the only time in my life it got ripped off was was towards you know was in the nineties there. 
by you know by a, a manager when I was working with this artist. I just felt I I'm not so sure I really want to do this anymore. I pour my heart out and throw my soul into this every single day, and it's all I think about and all I do, and and it's it you know you just get like a bunch of rejection back, and I'm not good at I'm not good with rejection. That's you know I don't I don't do rejection great. So, um, so, you know, so I, my, my output was, was decreasing. Then I got a call from a bass player who used, used to be the bass player in the band I was in in England, who also stayed, he was also in America at this point. And he said that he owned, um, he ran, sorry, um, an equipment, a studio equipment rental company called Dream Hire in New York. Dream Hire was another tentacle of Jive Records. Jive Records is built up like a, the top of the, it was called Zomba Recording was the main thing. Out of Zomba Recording, there was Jive Records as one leg. There was Battery Studios was another. Dream Hire, which was the um, the rental company. And then there was Zomba Publishing. All these different tentacles of, of the company. And they were all meant to feed into each other. It was all very like self um, uh sustaining, you know, like Motown Records was in the 60s. Um, so he ran Dream Hire and he said, yeah, do you want to come and work with me and like and rent out equipment? And I was like, oh, and first of all, I just said, no, and just sort of hang up the phone. Thanks, Chris, but no. And because my ego was telling me uh, I was a lead singer in a band, I've had hit records as a songwriter, I'm not working behind the desks, you know, renting equipment, you know, like I'm too good for that. You know, that's it's the way you think at that age, you know. And I was like, "Screw this!" And then he called me up again a, f- a few months later and said, "You sure you don't want to do it?" And I was kind of like, "Well, how much are you paying?" <laughs> it was like, and it was a minuscule amount, but it was like, and I just made the decision. I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And I don't know why I did it. And you talk about those those moments in your life when you make a decision, and it and it's maybe the best thing you did, and you have no idea why, because it's totally illogical. Um, and uh, I really took two steps back, one step back, and ended up taking thousand forward because of that one decision when I was offered the job. So I went there and I worked there for a year in Dream Highness in the same building as Jive Records. Sure. Um, and and it was weird because I was renting from an ego point of view. It was very strange because I was. I was renting equipment, studio equipment, to producers and engineers that I used to employ, you know, and now they was coming in and now I was just the, the rental guy. And it was very, very weird. And I, and I learned two things. One, um, my ego was shit and needed adjusting. That was one thing. And, and the second one was that I actually, I found out I could work with other people um, in, a, in an environment that wasn't songwriting. Because that's all I knew. I came out, you know, that's all I knew. I'd had some jobs back in England where I worked in a factory and a shoe, 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 shoe store and things like that. But then my main life was just being in a band. And, and uh, that's all I knew was writing songs and being in a band. And then songwriting after that. And so now I was basically in a, an office taking phone calls um, and renting equipment out. It was like, it was like real work, you know, for the first time in my life, like real work. Um, and I found out I could do it and I could talk to people and I was actually kind of human. You know, I was, I was, I wasn't just this recluse in my room writing songs. You know, I was, I could actually deal with the, with the outer world. And it was a great learning thing for me. 
But the one thing I did, I I tried to, I knew Clive Calder worked in the building. Clive Calder was, if, I, if you want to go back to the previous part of my life, was the manager of the, of the band I was in in England um, that I'd left. And then he started up Jive Records. And now I was working for him, but I, you know, in the same building, but I didn't want to bump into it because again, my ego was still saying, I don't want to, I don't want him to see me here. I, I know he knows I'm here because he pays my paycheck, but I really don't want to run into him. So I spent a, most of that year avoiding him. So until one day I got in the elevator on the way home and there was Clive on his way home. I went, oh, fuck it. So... Clive says to me, oh, how are you doing, Steve? Blah, blah, blah. Nice. So we start small talk. And uh, and we get down to the lobby and he continues talking. And he mentions his daughter, who's a drummer in a band. Um, and he says, yeah, she really likes this other band. And she mentions, and he mentions the name of the band. And I corrected him on his pronunciation of this band. And, and I could see this light go off behind his eyes. It was like, uh-oh. Because he's very perceptive with creative people, uh, Clive is. So to cut a long story short, he ended up bringing me up to his office like a couple of months later or whatever, and just started talking to me, playing me early Backstreet Boys songs. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? But, you know, and looking back on it, he was he was he wasn't being friendly. He was interviewing me for a job. That's what he was doing. Um, and I didn't really know. Um, I was a rock and roll guy. I was in a rock band, and I was going out to see rock bands at night. You know, that's what I did. I, I wasn't, you know, Backstreet Boys. I, that wasn't what I do. And um, again, to cut a long story short, he ended up offering me. He ended up offering me a job at Jive Records in the in the publishing department because he was getting um, like backlash from other members of his staff saying. Is too old to do this because by this time I was in my forties, um, and you don't hire somebody for their first time at a label in their forties with no experience. And he said, "No, that's a that's an asset. He's got age. He's got experience. I've worked with him in a band. He's the first person up to do an interview at six o'clock in the morning and travel, you know, fifty miles to to do a radio interview with a college radio station with ten listeners. You know, he's got a work ethic, which I do. So." He gave me this job, like off on the side, so I wouldn't offend anybody. But I did well in that job um, in the publishing, and then he gave me a, brought me over to A and R, and I got this low kind of job in A and R there. And then, and then it suddenly then Brittany entered our lives, and, uh, and again my life changed for another time. You know, uh, the second or third time in my life, which Clive called has been able to uh, influence my life. Yes, so. Ask a question away, otherwise yeah. I'll keep going. <laughs> See, no, no, I love this because many of the listeners, we we hear all these different mm -hmm. stories about how Britney came to be. So many people would say, oh, it was an overnight sensation. It was this and that. And and I remember, you know, a lot of the, the listeners, when I started talking about Baby One More Time was actually released in August, but promo for that was happening in summer. They were sending out like, clear book bags and things like that like they had a, an 800 number to be like call and listen to the snippet of this this new song sort of thing out there and i think many people look and go oh it's just october 23rd of 1998 that's when everything kicked off and it's like but there were so many different things that happened that happened right. before that so here we are so listeners buckle up 
here we go. We're going to get right into the nitty gritty of the original doll, Britney Spears. So many times, so many listeners have said, you know, when did Steve realize we have something that's going to work? Because we've heard the story of, you know, Britney went to different labels. It didn't work. And then there was kind of a get out clause kind of thing where if it just didn't work, a development thing, then it was just like wash our hands of the situation. So why don't you take us back for you from your perspective of, you know, here's A&R coming in. Here's this artist. Enter. Okay. <laughs> Curtain up. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, first of all, I'll just backtrack a, a month or two before that because Clive had, um, had hired me. He he had started like the Backstreet Boys had started to get some traction and were beginning to. You got to remember this is the time when radio was playing like grunge. It was very rock oriented. MTV was that. Radio was that. And and Jive and Clive, you know, wanted to change this dynamic because you know we 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 had a he he had a European sensibility um, and wanted like to form this more of a a pop factory type of mentality like like Motown was in the 60s in America and like Stock Aitken and Waterman were in the in England and just have a you know and just come up with some pop music and so Backstreet Boys we'd fought for a long time to get the Backstreet Boys on the radio so it's just beginning to get some traction and things were just beginning to change in fact they had changed um, MTV changed its formatting and radio started to to react to the phone calls they were getting whenever a, one of these records was being played by the Backstreet Boys. Um, and so he wanted an A&R person who understood this mentality. And he had tried, in fact, he got his A&R staff, the head of a and I, I don't want to go into names, but you know who I'm talking about more than anything, um, mm -hmm. uh, to suggest pop A&R people and kept on bringing in people that were just not suitable. And Clive was throwing up his hands and saying, no, I need someone who understands this, not someone who thinks he understands it. So, so I'll go back and when Clive's, uh, the light went on behind his eyes in that meeting uh, out of the elevator, um, and then our subsequent um, meetings in his office when he would be, you know, quote unquote, interviewing me or like, you know, just <laughs> being nice, whatever, you know, he wanted, he, he decided that I was that guy, you know. Much to my surprise, as well as anyone else's, because I was a rock guy. I didn't know. Um, so he said, no. He says, you know, all the songs you've ever written have been pop songs, even when they, you thought they were rock songs, they were pop songs. You've produced artists who are pop artists. He says, you're a pop person. You understand the English mentality of the pop music factory type of, type of way of going about making pop music, but you've lived enough in America that you understand the American sensibility Towards that, he says, you know, you're perfect for this. Um, and you've got to remember that Clive called up is, a, is an incredible um, discoverer of talent, um, executive talent as well as musical talent. You know, he discovered Max Martin. He discovered um, Rodney Jerkins, discovered Teddy Riley from the New Jack Swing era. Mm -hmm. These are all people who, who he discovered when they were like T-boys or the second second chart, you know, like the second people, they weren't the main people he went to see in the studio, but he had recognized who actually did the work. Um, and he was always, he always believed in things being a meritocracy, which is a word which will come up a lot, I think, and when, I'm, when I start discussing Britney, there's a meritocracy. Um, you have to be there because you deserve it. 
Um, you can't be there on name alone. You have to bring something to the table on merit. So he offered me this uh, this job at night, and I and I took it um, after being a year a dream hire. And um, this, I must admit, my my first entrance into A and R. Um, I don't think it was welcomed by some of the other A&R people at the label because I was, I think I was considered Clive's boy because I understood pop music and Clive mm. took me under his wing in that in that regard um, and confided in me things that he wouldn't confide in them. So I think I felt, I think they felt a little threatened by me and it wasn't my intention. I'm certainly not a confrontational person. So <clears throat> Brittany, it was Larry Rudolph who, who bought um Brittany to our extension. You know, he gave a uh, um, a copy of the tape, which I still have, by the way, of her, of the song that got her, well, that got us interested. I've still got that that, that song on cassette. Um, and he, he gave it to the head of A&R. Um, the head of A&R had played around to the other A&R people at the label, and they had passed on it. They said, no, this is not good. Just as Larry Rudolph, when he played it to other labels, um, they'd also said, no, this isn't good enough. Um, so head of A&R um, said, said, he brought me into the office one day and said, Steve, what do you think of this? Um, I don't think he was, I don't know if he was that concerned with my opinion. I think he was a political thing because I was Clive's boy. And mm. so, so he played it and he showed me the pictures that she had sent in. And I still got those two. I still got all the demo materials that she came in with, um, and and I said, you know, there's something here because we had the Backstreet Boys, and we were looking the the basic criteria. And you might know this already. In fact, I'm sure you do. But the basic criteria we were after, we were modeling this on what happened in the '80s, ten years ago. And there was new kids on the block, and then Debbie Gibson came out, and Tiffany. There was a girl equivalent to the males, to the male boy groups, um, and so we, you know we were kind of after someone who could fill that for us. Um, we weren't looking for a Mariah Carey or a Whitney Houston. We were looking for someone who who was teen and who understood that market and who that market. The same people that went to see Backstreet Boys, you know, their girlfriends would like. That artist. We were after someone who was compatible. So I said, I think there's something here. I, I really like what I'm hearing. I don't think she's singing this song right. It was a, a song in the wrong key for for Brittany, and there was all this, that, and the other. But there were parts in the song where she where she raised her voice into a different thing and did her own little 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 licks at the end of it. And I said, I I think there's something here. This is worth investigating. This feels good to me. The next thing I knew. We were doing our weekly at our meeting, and in walks this girl, Brittany, with her mother and Larry Rudolph. And she was as nervous as all shit. And your heart goes out to someone like that because when you're 16 years old in front of a, a you know, and it's not just an office, it's a conference room with a long table with like eight or eight to 10 sort of, you know, suits around who are twice, three times our age, whatever. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really difficult for that. And I, I really felt for her. Anyway, so she, um, they said, so could you sing something for us? Um, so she starts to sing and, uh, you must really know this story too, but the thing I remember more than anything is her eyes rolling back in her head, like she was about to faint as she was singing. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking this crazy thought, you know, if she does, does she do this all the time or is she just nervous? You know, because this would be like, it's kind of a great image to see somebody do that if she's doing it on purpose or if it's part of her presentation. But it wasn't. She was just like scared shitless. Anyway, so she sang, you know, she sang, and then we got her to sing the national anthem or something because she didn't really want to sing anything else. And she was in this like, little summer dress, and the mother was sitting there all nervous, and Larry was doing his usual manager thing, like pumping her. He wasn't a manager at the time. He was just a lawyer, quote, slash manager. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he's probably, ah, oh, this is great, this, you know, that type of thing. Um, but Larry was kind of in awe of Clive Calder to begin with. So it's like whatever Clive said kind of went. So after that meeting, you know, we all said our goodbyes and everything. And then and then we had a meeting and basically Clive said, I, want, I, I agree with Steve, we should do this. Let's, let's do something here. Um, but nobody really knew what she could do. We didn't know she could dance. We had no idea she could dance. I mean, you know, this wasn't a, this wasn't a master plan. We weren't geniuses. We heard this we saw this girl who was cute and she could sing in a cute way and have her own little sound to her voice. And we said, let's get this a shot. Everyone else has turned it down, but maybe we can do something here because we know what we're doing. We've prided ourselves on our A&R ability. So we said, let's see what we can do. So we gave her a, we gave a three-month um, a trial period. We gave her a, a full deal so she'd get the full advance as if she was releasing a record. She'd get that in her hand and then she would... And I don't know how much that was, by the way. I doubt if it was much, you know, in Jive Records. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, we gave for that, you know. Um, frugal is the word. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we gave we gave her a full thing and she said, and even if we, even if at the end of three months we say it's no good, she keeps that money. It's like she's not going to be out of pocket, you know. So this is a, it was a good shot for her and, uh, and a good, you know, chance for us to try it out. So I said, okay, Steve. This is yours, um, because I was the pop guy. And he wrote a memo to everybody saying, this is Steve's gig, you know, let him do what he's got to do. Um, you know, because um, he'd been impressed with the stuff I'd done before then, you know, with them on a pop sense. So, you know, just from publishing point of view. So he said, okay, you know, go for it. And so then he was, he said, but Zony, he told me in private, there's one thing. You've got to use Zomba writers. That's Jive Records Publishing mm-hmm. Company. You've got to use our writers. But we're not spending a fortune on this, trying it out with expensive producers and everything. We've got to do this in-house, you know, Motown style. Which was a problem because all we had was R&B writers. We were an R&B label. We didn't have any pop writers, you know, um, to speak of. Uh, we didn't have any pop. So many people might not realize it's like Jive had like Tribe Called Quest, R. Kelly, Aliyah, had all of these, yeah. all of these people, and so there was Houdini, never like all these. <laughs> I think. There was, well, and that was well, and the funny thing was, Ollie in, Will um, Smith, <laughs> uh, Josh Schwartz said he's like everything was in house. He's like that's why we were in there. He goes, you knew who you mm-hmm. were working with. So the funny thing, some of the stuff that I've been able to debunk, if you will, was so many people were like, oh, this was a Britney, you know, uh, baby warmer time demo. And this was. You know, uh, oops, you know, but I was on a separate label and it did this, that. I was like, I don't know. That's no, that's not the way any of that works. So there are people coming forward that are like, oh, I did all these things, but I worked under, you know, Universal. It's like that you were not part of the the VMG. You know, there was there was no way because everything was in house and the pop side hadn't been fully developed on the the songwriters or the producer side. So that's why 
when we talk about like these demo kind of things and how this this project started developing is I think was it Eric Foster White was like the only pop kind of well one of the only pop yeah, guys yeah. Yeah, what happened was, um, and again, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus because I'm not mentioning any names here, but um, but the truth of the fact the fact is that I, you know, I tried, I tried putting Britney with with people. I put the, I put it with Full Force, who are uh, the most pop out of our R and B type of uh, uh, guys, and, uh, and they did a, a good job too. And they bought you know things out of her, but it still wasn't what I was looking for. Um, and 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 I got other people in the publishing company to to get some writers to try and write stuff for whatever and nothing really came out and then I was going through the whole writing roster and I saw Eric Foster White I said who the hell is Eric Foster White so I asked and uh, and they said yeah is this pop guy lives out in New Jersey and I said pop guy we have a pop guy so I called him up and I started talking to him and he said he said yeah um, I'm Santa Zomba but I don't like writing for them and I said why is that and he said because I don't like um, the head of A&R is basically what it was. And I don't like the way they they, uh, they treat me or talk to me. So I said, okay, I'm coming out to see you. You know, So I went out there to his house and he's got his studio there. And we got on great. I told him exactly what I was doing, You know, where I come from. I come from a musical background. I'm not a regular A&R guy. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I just know that because because I've had this experience that I've had in the past as being, you know, a band member, like a singer, like I've, I've written some hit songs and I've produced people that I already felt without a word of arrogance that I was like better than most of the NR people that I'd ever met while I was the other side of the desk, while I was a writer. The NR, the level of A&R was, was horrific, um, you know, just terrible. And I already felt like I was, I kind of knew what I was doing more than they did already. So I told him that, and I wasn't being arrogant, and I'm not being arrogant now. It's just a, just the way I felt. Um, so, um, so I said, I want you to meet Brittany. You know, just give us that. You know, she's a jive artist, but let me introduce her to you. So we did, and he fell in love with her. So the same thing that I did, um, but she came around with Fee. You know, like for Alicia. You know, and uh, and and we spent. All this time in the studios, and we got some pop stuff out. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. But we were searching, we were experimenting, we we're trying to find that lane. We knew that our lane, and, and by the way, Brittany was in on this. This wasn't like we were forcing anything on Brittany here. And I'll get into all the conspiracy theories about that as well like a little bit later, because that's really important. I put the record straight on that because there's so much bullshit out there about that. Mm -hmm. um, but Brittany was in there too, and and we and we we just you know. We were searching for a lane. We knew we didn't want to be Whitney Houston. We knew we didn't want to be Mariah Carey. She really didn't have the voice for that, despite what these conspiracy theorists say. She didn't have the voice to be competitive on that label, on on that in that lane. So we had to find our own that really worked. Um, so now let me jump back to when to when I before I go any further with that, um, it's necessary that I jump back to when um, she first signed uh, to us. Before the Eric Foster White thing, I, uh, Clive said, I want you to go down to Kentwood, Louisiana, and meet Britney's parents, meet the whole family, just get a vibe for what this whole thing is about. Because all we know at the moment is that she's a 16 year old Southern girl and she comes up to New York and she's got a lawyer who we know from, you know, handling another act. And that's all we know. Like, 
find out more. Let's just see what we're what we're in, mm-hmm. see what she's into, and at least that's what I did. I went down there, um, got picked up at the uh, at the airport by by a father and his pickup truck and chewing tobacco and spitting it out the window and all this thing. You know, it's like it was great. I mean, you know, look, I'm I'm a sucker. I'm an English person, but I I feel kind of like a redneck too. I just like I just like that stuff. You know, so um, so we went down and 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 so. And I sat in the car when everyone else went inside. I sat in the car with Brittany, and I, and I played her some things. Um, I said, "Have you seen the Robin? You know the the uh, Swedish artist Robin, who Max Martin had produced." Um, and there was a song. I think it's "Show Me Love." I think it is. I said, "Have you seen the video for that? What do you think of the video, the song?" She said, "I love the song." She said, "But the video is all wrong." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Well, it's all in black and white." She said, "For a start." And nobody's dancing. She said, I said, so what would you do? And she said, well, for a start, it would be in color. I'd be wearing a mini dress and I'd be dancing. That was it. And she said, I'd be having fun. That's what I'm about. And it's, it's amazing how much she knew what her peers would like. She was one of them. You know, she really was one of them. Um, and so I said, so I said, you know, I, I, I clocked that in my computer in the back of my head. I said, well, that's cool. Um, then I played her a song by the Jets, a song called You Got It All, which was a hit for the Jets. And I said, so what do you think of this song? She said, I love this song. She started singing along with it in the car and I heard a voice. And he was like, holy shit, this could actually work. You know, I'm beginning to get a feel for who she is mm-hmm. at this point. You know, it was this teen thing. There was this innocent thing about her, but it was a, like a... a, a energetic sort of innocent it was like she wanted to sort of throw innocence in your face if you if that makes any sense you know mm-hmm. she she was kind of um she she knew she was like ultimately the schoolgirl in the britney one more time in the baby one more time video that was her that was her idea totally her idea and that's what she was kind of telling me in without knowing she was saying it in 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 that first day when i went down to kentwood um so I learned a lot about her at that point and met her parents, which is, and that's a whole different story because we can get into that too, around the parents and the, and the father at that point in the very early days. Um, so now I'll spring back. And so now I, I, we were with um, Eric Foster White in New Jersey, and she's the same girl buying out these things. We didn't do the song You Got It All because it's a cover song. We were just trying out new stuff that Eric and a couple of his friends had written. Um, you know, and he was writing songs for her, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. And then, so through this three-month period I had with her, we were trying out all these things, all experimentation, see what she was comfortable with, what she wasn't comfortable with, um, and not letting it lead the way. But but from my experience and from from Eric's experience, I mean, I've got enough experience to be able to read, be able to read uh, singers because I've worked with them all my life. And mm-hmm. having worked with Mutt Lang, he's the best oh, yeah. coach of vocalists I've ever ever met, and the most demanding. So I I know nuances. I can tell you things when as soon as I hear a voice about what they're good at and what they're. I'm just it's just something I know I can do. So I knew that with Britney, and I knew what song she was comfortable with or which one she was struggling to get. Um, and it could be for all sorts of different reasons. It can be a vowel sound in a, in a word that some people can't get soul into that they can't sing properly or it can be pitch like you can sing down here and you can sing up here 
but the thing in the middle, sometimes a certain belt you just like can't really get with any confidence. So I, I started to sort of take all that in, you know, and and I realized that Eric was was really good with that. He was like, you know, he so he became my first ally in this in the in the Britney project. Um, I, I hate that word project because it makes it sound so cold, cold, and I used to hate that as a writer. So I'm, I'm <laughs> I apologize for using it just that. It wasn't a project. It was a labor of love is what it was. That's what it yeah. was. It was a labor of love. Um, and um, it was hard work, but it wasn't, if you understand what I mean, because you knew you had something. And I've always, I've always accepted the challenge of doing things like that. And, you know, there was no lane. There was no real blueprint for what we wanted to do with it. I had to find it. So anyway, it gets to the end of this three months, and and we still don't have anything that uh, that I feel is strong enough to put forward to Clive. And so, um, I mean, I put some stuff forward, but he didn't really think he was that great. He liked it. He thought oh, it's interesting, but you know, mm-hmm. Clive is a hit man. He wants a hit single. That's what he wants. That's what keeps the company's lights on. That's what makes careers. You know, it's the hit single, um, and that's what he was wanting or at least the direction towards a hit single. So then I said to Eric Fosswhite, I said, Eric, he didn't he didn't want to do it initially, but I said, you've got to do you got it all. You know, I know it's a cover song, but we've got to do it. You know, I want to hear her voice on that song. So we did it. We got her voice on the song. And then the next day in our meeting, I played it for Clive. Clive says, we got it. We got a direction. We got something that we can deal with. Let's make this deal permanent and say we're going to make a record. So that's what we did, you know. And this so was literally... Almost, almost like kind of with a week to go, you know. I mean, this was like, I mean, this thing almost didn't happen. Like all those records on the on the back wall there, almost didn't exist because other labels had turned it down, and we were like, you know, week or two away from from passing on ourselves. If if, and that was kind of, I didn't feel stressed because I kind of enjoyed it, but I was so relieved when he said when he said, "Let's do this." See, because because I didn't want to be the one to tell Brittany we couldn't, we couldn't do this, you know. Well, and and that's the other thing too is it's like so many people don't realize that there's so much, so many songs, so many you know sessions that never get finished, that never you know it's like scrapping this, we're moving on, yes. now we're going this way. Yeah. What I loved is I reached out to Rupert Holmes and I was just like, hey, who's the yeah. writer of You Got It All? Who also did? I've never spoken to him. Yeah, he's the writer on. It's a great song. So I'm hopping out here because I have an episode from a few years ago where I talk extensively about You Got It All, and I actually even reached out to the songwriter. But you can easily go find that episode. Here's kind of the the Reader's Digest version of it. So Rupert Holmes was tasked with uh, writing a song for a group, and he the lead singers, it was the group, the Jets, the lead singers, um, or the lead singer, I should say, was going to be doing the leads on it. She was about 12, 13 years old at the time. And so Rupert said, how do I create a song, a love song for a girl that young? Like, how do I not make it basically super cheesy and things like that? And he said, at the same time, I thought, how great would this be? Because I can write a song that maybe my 10-year-old daughter's friends would know. And she could say, hey, my dad wrote this song. So he wrote this with all of that in mind the song would end up becoming a hit single. And for the Jets, this was an amazing success for the song. Sadly, Rupert Holmes' 10-year-old daughter, Wendy, died before the song really got its shine. So the song was about innocence, and he wrote this with his daughter in mind. So I wanted to point that out. Like I said, the full 
episode of that is uh, you can just scroll through just like with every episode on the original dial. You don't have to really listen to those in order. You can kind of hop around. But now back to the show. I didn't know that was what it was about. Oh, my God. It's being proud of the innocence of love. So when you said the innocence thing, it's like that to me makes sense because this wow. song was written, you know, fr- through what would be his daughter's eyes. And then it goes to the Jets, a large, you know, family and a 15 year old lead singer that does it, too. So many people are like, oh, yeah. Brittany, was she too young to sing this? It's like the Jets made that song famous and they were around the same age that Brittany was. Yeah. When Brittany yeah. was cutting that song. See, that's amazing. Now, the other question, I did have a question about uh, You Got It All since we're on that really quickly so that we had, uh, where was it? I forgot what the person's, oh, here it is. Uh, Mackenzie from England said, James, I love that you reached out to songwriter Rupert Holmes about the cover. Can you ask Steve if anyone else was trying to figure out if it was going to be on the first album, the second album, was there ever any thought it was going to be on there? And I read online that Full Force was the original producers of that song, the Britney version. Can you just ask if that's true or not? Yes. Well, what what is her name? Mackenzie from England. Okay, Mackenzie. Mackenzie, that that you're very well informed. In fact, we did. They did try. You got it all with full force. First of all, and they did a they did a decent job of it. I mean, they're very talented and everything, but it didn't quite get the vibe I was looking for. Um, that that I thought would be the clincher. There was a there was a certain thing that I could hear in Britney's voice that I really wanted to to bring out and a certain sort of production ethos that I wanted her to be about. It had to be R&B influenced without being R&B because she couldn't be compared to R&B singers because, you know, it wouldn't have legs that way. It just wouldn't, you know. Um, but she could be compared to other white girl singers and sound really soulful for a, for the age she's at and everything. And that's where she had a lane. That's where she had a leg up where no one else was doing that. Um, and I just felt that the the full force version didn't quite didn't quite get that. But so yes, so then, for the Eric Foster Whitewood, which was so you got it all that. And for those who don't know, the Oops I Did It Again remixes and B sides came out on vinyl for part of Record Store Day. You get the blue one. And it had You Got It All on there. And so my question then was, the vocals, which is kind of a cool vinyl. Nice. Um, nice. My, my question then is, did she do two different vocals for the one for the full force one and one for the... Yeah, yeah. We started from scratch. Yeah, she started from scratch. I wouldn't do that. That's kind of, you know, from my point of view, from my ethos, that's kind of like insulting to both sets of producers if you start to mix them back just like you know show me what you got on your own on your own thing I, i'm not one of these people that i don't treat writers and producers like uh like lego pieces or yeah. something or like jigsaw pieces that's it's, it's disrespectful i would never do that i think that's because you were an artist you were you know creative on that end too do you know what i mean like because i feel like absolutely a, a business person might say well what's the difference they're all interchangeable but it's not it's yeah. much more than that for a creative person yeah the other question I wanted to kind of tie into this is Stephanie from Ottawa. She said she said she is a she kind of sent a long paragraph, but she said I could paraphrase it. She's a vocal coach and said, can you please have Steve talk and debunk this whole using baby voice, natural voice? She, baby said, voice. Of, yeah. she says uh, she says I've been a vocal teacher, vocal coach for the past 27 years. 
and many times it bothers my ears to hear people talking about singing in a way that they think that they're an expert. Can you please ask Steve Lunt or anyone involved during the developmental stages to debunk these or at least to clarify with people? Because I think we only can learn from this sort of information. That was Stephanie Ottawa. Okay, okay Stephanie from Ottawa. Um, I'd be delighted to do to answer this question because this has been like a like a bugbear of mine ever since I first read it. I think on YouTube or something, one of those things, and the whole baby voice started reading about the baby voice about how Jide Records forced her to sing like this, and one person even said she had an operation. It's like all this. We have more with Steve Lunt coming up very very soon. Don't forget to subscribe because. And here is the greatest thing. I'm going to be surprised dropping these episodes. But beyond that, Steve and I went through album by album of all the projects he worked on with Britney Spears. We did pretty much a track by track of all of the projects, including B-sides, demos, unreleased, for those Patreon patrons and for those Instagram followers, those who have sent questions over the years uh, that said, if I ever get to talk to Steve or anyone involved, ask them if this song was a Britney song. And we we take down names. We go through and clarify everything. We label some things as just BS and other things as Britney Spears. So be sure to subscribe to get notified right when this drops. My name is James Rodriguez, and this is the original doll.